0: This is Glenn Crooks on frame. Soccer journalist Grant Wall passed away while covering the World Cup in Qatar. He was 49 years old. I interviewed Grant for this podcast at Sirius XMFC after he released the book Masters of the Modern Game, and I'd like to pay tribute to Grant by replaying that full interview here from April the 30th, 2018. Grant's goal was to get a top player in each position plus a top coach. Pulisic, Xavi Alonso, Chicharito, Neuer, company. But he didn't get everyone he wanted, as you'll learn. It's a fascinating look on the inside. Let's listen. We're happy now to be joined by Grant Wall. He's the senior writer at Sports Illustrated and contributor to Fox Sports and author of the just released Masters of Modern Soccer. I'm holding it right here. You can't see it, though. This is the radio. Grant, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. This is awesome. And going through this book, very exciting. And you have all these different uh, possibilities because you go by position. You go by forward uh, midfielder, back, goalkeeper, coach or manager and then also sporting director. So the, you had myriad choices of, of all these positions. How did you how did you narrow it down to these guys?
1: The fun part at the start of this book was to actually make sort of uh, a ideal draft list of the top five people I would pick for each position that's represented in the book because I wanted one to represent each of the spots you just mentioned on the field and coach and, and director of football. And thankfully, luckily, I got my top choice in just about every one. and the couple, I didn't get my very top choice. I got the number two or three person. And I was looking for people who were extremely accomplished world-class or were were very close to it but also who were extremely intelligent about explaining how they do their job and that's a pretty small group not that high a percentage of practitioners are that great at explaining their talent in detail and these guys all were how did you determine that though
0: before you actually sat down with them
1: you know, some of these guys I had had interactions with before, like Shabby Alonzo, I'd gotten to know over the last several years. Had interviewed him several times, knew he'd be great for this book. Uh, you know, he's going to be a great manager someday, really smart player for so long. And then other people I had not interviewed, like Vincent Company. With those guys, it was more about doing some research myself, seeing how they did interviews, and then talking to journalist friends of mine. Uh, in different countries, including over in Europe, and just asking them, you know, do you think this guy would be a really smart interview? And that winnowed out a few people, but also confirmed my thoughts on, suspicions on some of these guys. And to my luck, all of these guys were great. And, and not even in their first language all the time. Like Shabby Alonso in English was terrific. No way. All these interviews were done in English, and yet uh, the guys were really expressive
0: you mentioned it a little bit earlier there. There were maybe some that uh, that were your top choices that you didn't get. My question here was, is there anybody you really wanted to speak to for this book who kind of denied that chance?
1: The Maybe the the manager position ended up being Roberto Martinez, which was fantastic because Roberto, U.S. fans, U.S. TV watchers know him very well from all the great work he's done over the years uh, for ESPN during summer tournaments. Uh Really insightful about the game. Uh, you know, I, I had approached Jurgen Klopp first, um, and Klopp was like, "You know, I would love to do something uh, with you for Sports Illustrated at some point, but I, I really don't want to give away my secrets." That's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. You know, in the end, I ended up doing it with Roberto, who was terrific and you never know what's going to happen these are two years of interviews with these guys and when we first started the interviews with Roberto he was the Everton manager in early 2016 and then he got fired and my first reaction was oh boy you know this is going to be tough and it actually turned out for the book in a really positive way because he soon took the Belgium job he could win the World Cup this summer And so I went back and interviewed him as the Belgium coach several months after he'd gotten into that job, and he was so interesting at talking about the differences between being a top-level club manager and a top-level national team coach. And How you have to basically change up how you do your job in a fundamental way.
0: Uh, Grant Wall, our guest, uh, regarding Martinez, he did a remarkable job at Wigan, which you point out in the book. He had to change because he's a a Spaniard and he had his own way to play. Uh, And so he had to kind of meld his desired tactics with the, uh, the English game
1: yeah and adaptation is so such the key word of that chapter on Roberto Martinez because his whole career and actually his life is defined by adaptation. Here's a guy who grew up in Spain, uh, had very sp- Spanish uh, ideas about how to play the game, then goes to the u k and then spends almost the entirety of his playing career and the first several years of his managing career uh, in a culture that he picked up some things and you know learned to value set pieces and other aspects of playing in a British style um, that I think have helped him. But he's always been very adaptive when it comes to working with the talent he has at his disposal and a willingness to change up what he's doing tactically uh, based on what he needs and is trying to achieve. And he did that over the years. I get into that in detail at Wigan. And it's a remarkable feat of staying up for as long as they did, given the talent and the money they actually had, which wasn't a
0: lot. You quoted some statistic that they were uh, 95% certain, based on some calculation, to, uh, to be relegated uh, every year that he was the manager.
1: Yeah. And the, it took so long for it to finally happen. It says a lot about R- Roberto Martinez's abilities as a coach. And even that year, they won the FA Cup. So he's a good knockout tournament Coach, And I think we're going to see that this summer with Belgium. Even the year that he got fired at Everton, they did really well in knockout tournaments. It was their position in the league and some of the defensive stuff that they dealt with that ended up spelling the end of his time at Everton.
0: Before we leave, Martinez, I have to ask you, the it's a guy who really loves the flow of the game, uh, not necessarily dead ball situations. Did he really tell you that he thinks dead balls, set pieces, should count as only half a goal? That is something that Roberto has actually said in a few places over the years, uh, which
1: is amusing and obviously is, is never going to happen, but it's something that he really puts uh uh, a lot of respect on scoring goals in the run of play.
0: All right. Let's go to the midfielders. You mentioned Xabi uh, Alonso. But in the chapter on midfielders, you merge Alonso with uh, someone very familiar to the American uh, public, uh, Christian Pulisic. So how, how, how exactly did you do that?
1: Well, this was... And why? Yeah, this is the first chapter of the book, and it's on midfielders. And I wanted to have a defensive midfielder and an attacking midfielder. And... Uh, I wanted to have an American in the book, and Christian Pulisic is the closest thing to world class that we have on the men's side in American soccer, and i had spent a fair amount of time with Pulisic over the last couple years and had seen his growth in an interview setting in terms of uh, his ability to uh, to show insight and and to be thoughtful about the sport, and this book, for me, it confirms it. He, Christian Pulisic, as a teenager, holds his own in what he says about how he plays his position with Shabi Alonso, a guy who is much older, who's won World Cups and Champions Leagues. And I think this is a side of Pulisic that maybe American readers haven't totally seen yet and will be uh, really impressed with how he thinks the game. And, and I spent uh, quite a bit of time with Christian and with Shabi uh, in front of a laptop uh, watching clips of them playing, and to actually it's funny as a journalist, you speak to these guys after games, and and by the
0: way, if I could interrupt yeah. I'm extremely envious of the opportunity <laughs> that you had to sit there and watch this together with them. but go ahead
1: but i mean when you when you sit down with these guys, typically as a journalist after a game, you talk about the game and 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 that's fine, but it's very rare that you actually get into stepping back and talking to them in general terms and then very specific terms about how they play their position, how they approach what they do. It's kind of surprising to me that we don't have these conversations more often in the media, which the opportunity to watch an hour of video or two hours of video with Christian Pulisic and and Inshabi Alonso was so educational to me just to get a sense of how they think the game and how they're always anticipating what could come next. What am I going to do here if I get the ball? Shabby Alonso? what happens if my team loses the ball? I need to be here. But also to get into, with both of them, some of the things that they're extremely good at. They're basically both finished products as teenagers in certain aspects. So Christian was talking about, when it comes to beating, taking guys on -on one-on-one and trying to beat them, I feel like I've already... I'm basically almost a finished product there, but where I need to really improve is what I do after I beat somebody and to be smarter with how I decide about being clinical in front of goal or sending a cross or a through ball or or whatever, shooting. Um, Xavi Alonso told me that his passing skills were basically a finished product by the age of 18, which is pretty impressive when you think about all the different types of passes that this guy unleashed over the years. Um,
0: but you, that, you described his distribution in the book as Chinese water torture <laughs> to the opponent.
1: But one area where Alonso said he wasn't a finished product and was still very much continuing his education and why he went to play for Pep Guardiola at Bayern Munich was because he wanted to learn more about the positional aspects of the game and was continuously learning new things under Guardiola who's fanatical about positioning uh, until he, uh, Alonzo retired, just a couple years ago,
0: it's it, he. Uh, he is certainly the coach on the field. I mean, you describe certain situations where he's literally instructing during the run of play. The only thing missing is like a whiteboard <laughs> on the field. <laughs> yeah. So, you, there's no question he's a manager, future manager.
1: He wants to be a future manager. Uh, in the last years of his career, Alonzo was keeping a notebook of notes for his future managing career that he and I talked about a bit. Uh, I think he's gone about it the right way. He didn't jump into a job immediately upon retiring as a player last year. Um, You know, it's very early in Pulisic's career, but he already speaks like a guy who, if he wanted to manage someday, probably could based on how he talks about the game at the age of 18, 19.
0: When you're sitting there watching... The uh, video with him. Uh, is there anything that stands out in particular that you may have learned about him? Uh, you, you talked about a couple of situations, but but what really stands out?
1: In terms of Polisic? he has a photographic memory of plays. And I had put together with the help of a, a video expert, like about an hour's worth of different clips of Polisic doing different things on the field. And it was a little bit of a chronological hodgepodge. So this wasn't in chronological order. And yet, within a fraction of a second of seeing that moment on the screen, Polissa could tell me where, what game it was, who the opponent was, what he remembers from th- what he was thinking in that moment. And finally I stopped him and I was like, dude, do you have like a photographic memory or something? And he's like, I remember everything out there. And just to sort of see that that mind at work and see how he thinks the game and how he remembers each thing and how he approached it. um, It was really, really interesting.
0: And to reiterate, because this has been out there before, he's talked about it. His technical skill is what got him started and his love for the game was while he was in England, perhaps. But he he learned with the ball at home between the ages of five and nine that you write.
1: Yeah. um, You know, Christian Pulisic has a tremendous first touch now that he uses to set up attacking moves so well. Uh, and that first touch was developed at a very early age. Uh, both Christian's parents played college soccer. His dad, Mark, is a coach. And uh, there's a lot of Mark talking in the book, too, and Christian, about how Christian, this wasn't like a Marv Marinovich, Todd Marinovich type situation. Like There was no like big pressure on Christian from his parents early on about playing the game. They wanted him to have fun. But they also worked on skills. That's, sh- that's
0: a positive message oh, uh, yeah. for all the parents who may be uh, sure. listening to this.
1: And, and yet they did work on skills, uh, including first touch, including using both his feet. And uh, those skills that Christian developed uh, really helped him. And even when you see him in video on YouTube as like a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, 13-year-old, he's really small, and yet the skills are there. And so once he started growing, that certainly helped him once he became a professional. But the skills remained, and that's the, the important thing.
0: Tab Ramos was watching him as a, an 11-year-old and said he was running the show against the U-14s. I assume that's the youth national team U-14s.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, and you know Ramos talks about the first time he saw Christian Pulisic play, and it was basically a lightning bolt moment, he said, that – you know, he's Tab's seen a ton of games, youth games over the years, and that was the only time he could remember that he actually saw a kid, picked up the phone, and immediately called Tony Lepore at U.S. Soccer and said, are you aware of this kid? And Lapore said, yeah, we've been hearing some things. Well, Ramos said, you know, keep, keep looking at him because this kid's going to be good.
0: We're with Grant Wall. He's got a new book out called Masters of Modern Soccer. If you're involved in the game at all, like the game at all, I'm telling you, it is, uh, it is worth the read. Granted, it's, it's an exceptional publication, and I'm glad you have the, the little guys in. So I'm going to forward now. Yeah. Chicharito has been one of my favorites for obvious reasons, for those who know me. Uh, Javier Hernandez. So you spent a couple of days with the Mexican national team. Uh, it's curious that you picked, uh, picked Chicharito out of uh, the number of strikers or forwards that you uh, had to choose from.
1: Yeah, you know, I part of me wanted to have a Mexican player because the Mexican team is so popular in the United States. But part of me also really wanted to, uh, to work with Chicharito because here's a guy who uh, has made a career uh, out of uh, being just so good at, at scoring goals. And they're not always the, the prettiest goals, and he's not always uh, the, the very best Forward in terms of the, the skills that you associate with a forward. He's just good at a lot of those skills, really good. And he finds ways to finish. And it's not a coincidence that this guy has continued to score basically everywhere he's gone. Uh, he's the all time uh, leader on the Mexican national team in goals now. Um, and so I spent a, a couple of visits with him. One when he was at Bayer Leverkusen was our first interview. Uh, and then spent a couple of days with him and Juan Carlos Osorio and the Mexican national team last summer in Denver when they were there and learned a lot. And there's a lot in the chapter actually about yeah that
0: chapter. I know it's a it's Chicharito, but it's really also Juan Carlos Osorio.
1: It is, and I, I really came away impressed with Osorio and how he approaches his players and has their full respect, which becomes very clear listening to Chicharito, but one thing we get into in the chapter is about these systematic patterns that the Mexican national team runs that are almost like set plays in basketball uh, to try and get the ball to Chicharito in front of the goal. And I knew that some of this stuff happened at club level where you can work on it every day, but I didn't know that national teams were doing this as much. And um, it was just, obviously, it's not the same as basketball, and a lot of things can happen in a play – uh, that you're not expecting, and in soccer you've just got to deal with it. But, uh, but you
0: had the magnetic board out, with oh, the, yeah. uh, and, and Juan Carlos was moving players around, Chicharito as well.
1: It was a really cool, more-than-hour-long interview jointly with Chicharito and Osorio, where at one point uh, Osorio just kind of got quiet and listened as Chicharito was explaining to me all the details of all the things that not just he was supposed to be doing on the field, but all of his Mexican teammates. And at the end of it, Osorio was like this proud father like because he was like, he gets it. You know, not only does he get what he's supposed to do, but he understands what everyone is supposed to be doing to create this opportunity in front of the goal.
0: You describe uh, Chicharito moving to the left wing in a World Cup qualifier against Costa Rica, and it screwed up the Costa Rican back line incredibly, and it worked uh, and you then say uh, you've traveled the world and talked to a lot of people and you've been told that Americans struggle at soccer because we're told to what to do by the coach because the sense of soccer is that it's a, it's flowing. You have got to make decisions on your own. But you would counter that with the the experience with Osorio. Yeah, I would.
1: I mean, I would say that, you know, I, I realize that in other U.S. sports that there's, you know, like football or basketball, maybe more set plays, things like that. But – um, I think if you're going to be a manager or coach at a high level in soccer these days, you need to sort of have some of these patterns set up. And the top teams do. And that's how you build chemistry. And obviously it's going to break down sometimes and you're going to, you know, use your talent to create what you can. There's
0: room for improvisation. Of course. course. Yeah, Yeah, as there is in
1: basketball. Um, And yet I was just struck by the structure that was there on the Mexican national team and how much time and training sessions that Osorio puts into these systematic
0: patterns. Before we leave Chicharito, uh, he's so efficient in front of the goal, seems to always be uh, in the right place at the right time. Did you get a sense for how that developed? Yeah, uh,
1: Chicharito talks about smelling the intuition in the box, as he puts it, which I think is a wonderful, I think it's coming like literally out of Spanish, Um, and it's about anticipation. For him, and if you can anticipate um, a split second ahead of your defender where the ball is going to be on a cross or a pass or uh, you know a scramble in the box, you can do some really good things as a forward. And I think you know, we talk in the chapter about scoring ugly goals and how he's gotten this reputation as a, a poacher, as, which is kind of a negative connotation in the soccer world. But he embraces it. He's like, look. If I'm scoring ugly goals on a regular basis, I'm scoring goals on a regular basis, and you know, after a while, um, you don't need to necessarily be scoring highlight real goals. They all count the same.
0: Now, anticipation is also critical on the defensive side of the ball, and your defender is Vincent Kompany, the uh, center back for Manchester City. Why?
1: Oh man, this guy's amazing, and I think it comes through in the in the chapter. He's so willing to share tricks of the trade for a center back that the company has learned over the years. Uh, And for me, it was just, I was tickled just sitting there listening to him. You know, he will start a sentence by saying something like, you know, most professional defenders don't understand this, but, and then explain something that is really cool to listen to. So, um, you know, one of those examples is, uh, most defenders, in his opinion, don't understand that if you're marking a forward in the box and the ball's out wide and there's good pressure on the ball, then you, Vince and company, can mark your your forward in the box more tightly. But if there's not good enough pressure on the ball out wide, you, Vince and company, need to lay off your striker a little bit because that passer is going to have much more of an ability to deliver a ball on a dime. And so it's that awareness of what's happening elsewhere, you know, and what your team is doing. That was a big thing with company was like, look, you know, there's certainly a lot of individual things you need to do as a defender, but it's all about team, really. And if you're on a in good chemistry with your defending teammates and all of the rest of your teammates, you're gonna have a much better chance at preventing goals.
0: And he was also able to Really aptly described the difference between playing for Pellegrini at Man City and playing for Guardiola and what his responsibilities were. He was exposed a little bit more in Pellegrini's system.
1: Yeah, he, exactly. And he almost sounded like he prefers the Guardiola situation a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, like under under Pellegrini, he was saying is like their their fullbacks bombed forward, and, and more than that their central midfielders, they didn't really have much of a defensive midfielder presence under Pellegrini. And so a lot of times uh, under Pellegrini, Company was one of the few guys to protect against a counter. And uh, he says there's a little more balance under Guardiola. And like other guys in this book who played for Guardiola, like Xabi Alonso, like Manuel Neuer company speaks reverently of Guardiola who's not a character in this book but he almost is just because these players talk about how different Guardiola is compared to other managers they've had in terms of his obsession in talking about positional stuff mainly about how a guy should be two feet over than where he is and why or why a player should just stand here a forward for a, a longer time than he thinks because that's his function and And so, like, I found that really striking because here are players in their 30s who've won everything just about, like, company like Neuer, like Alonso, who talk about how much they learned in their 30s about the sport playing under Guardiola.
0: Interesting that uh, company is now playing for Martinez on the— International level Mm -hmm. with Belgium, which when you started to write the book, you had no idea that was going to occur.
1: (laughs) Right? No, it was kind of. I was tickled actually, and I was tickled first when they were worked together for ESPN during Euro 2016 because company was injured and Roberto was doing studio stuff, and they were so much fun to listen to. They were just talking the game in a way that was smart but accessible, and I remember seeing that because I'd already started doing interviews, and I was like. And, and, and Roberto wasn't even the Belgium coach yet, you know? And so when the, when he became the Belgium coach, it was just this really cool thing as they got to know each other and uh, talk about each other. Um, but it was just so much fun. It, like for this book, it was almost like the interviews were uh, this massive extension of the limited time they had together on the USPN set.
0: The thing about company too is, to me anyway, he was one of the first center backs to come to England and... Have grace at the back, mm-hmm. be superior on the technical side. Had the ability to keep the ball, and I know he played for Anderlecht, and in that youth system, they were influenced uh, by uh, the Netherlands and Ajax. Right. So the ball was on the deck. Yeah. So he was he was very used to, uh, and and I'm sure that makes him very happy to play for Pep as well.
1: Yeah, and and company talks about modeling his game after Patrick Vieira and Marcel Desailly and. Um, yeah, you know, he he was so confident he wanted to be better than them, and you know, But at at Anderlecht, like you said, they they played the ball on the ground, and he, and Company even still uses this phrase called "going Anderlecht" on somebody when he decides to make a marauding run up the field on the ball, and it was a great preparation for him because he's like, look, we didn't even work on headers until late in our teens, and that didn't hurt him in the game. And this is a guy who scored plenty of goals with his head, you know, big goals over the years. Um,
0: That's interesting because it really relates to the player development initiatives from U.S. soccer and Tab Ramos, where they have the build outline now for like the U10s. Mm -hmm. You can't head until after you're 10 years old. So it's kind of similar.
1: That hit me. and I made that point when I discussed companies saying that, um, that you don't need to be heading the ball at age 10. Uh, And uh, to see his development, you know, he w- was in Germany with Hamburg early in his career, and then go to England and and just you know bring a, a dimension of class on the ball was you know I, I think he's he's a really special player. It's unfortunate he's had so many injuries, but he seems to have gotten past that a little bit this year uh, and and won the Premier League obviously with with City this season, but. um yeah, Vincent Company is a uh, such a, a classy guy to to listen to, and, and he's really good. If he uh, he said he may want to become a coach, he may want to go into television. He'll be really good in whatever he does.
0: An engaging guy, and uh, you, you mentioned that Guardiola comes up often in the book. Patrick Vieira did as well. Xabi Alonso gave uh, Vieira a lot of credit, just mm-hmm. more maybe by his observation as an opponent than actually knowing him that well.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I had asked at one point to Xabi Alonso, who are players that uh, you really, really admired, especially earlier in your career. And Vieira was Viera at Arsenal, when Xabi Alonso went to Liverpool, was one of those guys. And uh, just the way that Vieira went about his, his job on the field was something that Alonso really, really respected, it was clear.
0: All right. I know you have the uh, sporting director as well. Introduce him to us, why you chose him, but for editorial reasons, we're not going to spend as much time on him.
1: Yeah, his name is Michael Zork, and, and he's the sporting director at Borussia Dortmund. And um, this is a guy who – it's probably the closest thing in the book to a Billy Bean-type character, a Moneyball-type character, where Zork's very clear. He's like, look, we have each year 200 million euros less revenue – than the teams that we are competing against, like Bayern Munich, like Real Madrid, like those teams in 200 Canada. million. 200 million. Now, is that
0: euros or dollars?
1: Euros is what he said, yeah. So you're talking about slightly more than 200 million dollars. And he's like, look, so we have to find advantages that uh, those teams don't have. And he and his staff over the years now have been amazing at buying low and selling high. On so many players and there's a full list of all the players that he's bought in the last 10 years or so and how much he paid for them how much he sold them for and sure there's a couple guys that they've sold for less than what they bought but the vast majority of players players were very familiar with that they bought at Dortmund under Zork when nobody had heard of them like Robert Lewandowski or Shinji Kagawa uh, it's a remarkable record and so, we get into how they go about doing that, but one point that he makes is it's not just my job isn't just about buying low and selling high. it's about competing to win trophies, and that Dortmund has been able to do that not every season. this hasn't been their best season, but to do that on a pretty regular basis, given their revenues, um he is the best at his job the you know directors of football. I think suffer a little bit in Europe because not everyone even knows what the job is exactly.
0: And well, look what I said introducing this. I don't want to spend as much time on the sporting director as these other guys.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> and yet uh, there's other a few other guys who developed a reputation, like Monchi, the guy that Roma hired, uh, who had been at Sevilla for so many years, and Sevilla obviously had won so many. Uh, Europa League titles, but also had a great record of buying low and selling high on on specific players who became stars. Um, and uh, so I was actually choosing between Monchi and, and Michael Zork for this book. And, you know, the sporting director is in charge of developing a long-term strategy too. And I came away from this book project convinced more than ever that the sort of old-school, traditional, English-style manager who is in charge of both the day-to-day with the first team and the long-term strategy, that that is a philosophy that needs to die and is dying in parts of Europe, and even in England now, where you have a coach. This is the terminology. Usually they call it head coach, not manager, where the idea is that this guy coaches the first team, and that's enough of a responsibility. And then there's this director of football who's in charge of longer-term planning and strategy and they work together obviously but if you're the director of football you're more in charge of transfers and who you identify than the coaches
0: and zork uh, got christian pulisic over to dortmund and transfer and the uh, and then jurgen klopp the biggest compliment there to pulisic and zork is that when klopp left Dortmund for Liverpool, I think he put in a pretty big offer to try to get Pulisic to transfer, right?
1: Yeah, and that's obviously something to keep an eye on this summer because I just spent some time in Liverpool, and people over there who follow that team really closely think that Liverpool is going to get Pulisic this summer. We'll see. Obviously, we know Klopp really likes Pulisic. um,
0: Buy low, sell high.
1: And this would be a buy low sell high. I mean, Christian Pulisic went to Dortmund as a 15 year old. One of the reasons he chose Dortmund was their record with young players coming out of their youth ranks, but also just young players that they sign get a chance to play there. And we're seeing that more and more in Germany these days and in England. And so, um, you know, this is it's been a very mutually beneficial uh, relationship between Pulisic and, and Dortmund and Michael Zork and, and the various coaches they've had there. But every coach they've hired at Dortmund, you know, from Klopp to, you know, what whatever they're going to do now, is, uh, is somebody who is a coach who does youth development, is willing to play young players because that's how they go about their business.
0: Let me ask you, Pulisic, in order to sign with Dortmund, had to get a Croatian passport. Was there any Possibility at all, ever along the way, that he would choose Croatia over the U.S. men's national team.
1: The very first interview I did with Polisic was um, before he had been cap tied, uh, and so there was still a, a possibility at that point in time that he could have played for Croatia. Uh, and yet, I even talking to him then, and they wanted to keep their options open then, but it was clear in sort of reading the tea leaves and talking to them on background off the record that, that he was going to play for the U S that he had played for the U S at youth level. He had been in at Bradenton. Um, and he feels a real close connection to the United States. You know, look at his new tattoos. I mean, there's like a big Eagle, I think, uh, that he got. And, um, I don't think he has any, uh, any regrets about choosing to play for the United States. And, uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting because that was a huge thing for Polisic and his career, being able to get the Croatian EU passport, which allowed him to play over there before the age of 18. Had he not gotten the passport, he wouldn't have been able to start for another, I think it's like 10, 15 months in that time that he had getting that early start, earlier start – was key for uh, for him to, to make an impression and get moved to the first team quickly and get a lot of games in before he turned 18.
0: Final question. Who's going to be the next U.S. men's national team coach? And we did speak uh, briefly prior to this recording, and you think the uh, two guys that are mentioned in this book prominently, Juan Carlos Osorio and Roberto Martinez, could be candidates?
1: I think they'll be candidates. I think they should be candidates. And I certainly didn't choose to work with them in this book thinking that but the more time i spent with them um and maybe part of the reason they wanted to spend time with me and it exceeded my request was that um i think they're interested in the u.s job potentially uh and uh you know here are two guys osorio and in uh, martinez who've coached at very high levels who've had success at very high levels who have uh, an affinity and a, and a connection to the United States through various means over the years. With Roberto, it's coaching guys like Tim Howard, uh, and spending so much time on ESPN uh, with a U.S. audience over the years. Uh, with Osorio, he's obviously coached teams in MLS. Um, he's coached in Concacaf. Has done well in Concacaf. He knows the players in this area, but he also has a European component where he spent time at Man City over the years, uh, and really encourages. The Mexican players, as he would the U.S. if he took over, to play in Europe. Um, and so I think those two guys are terrific candidates for the U.S. job. And I think the fact that we haven't seen the U.S. hire a GM or a coach yet suggests to me, I think they're being smart about it. They want to wait until after the World Cup so that they have the best possible candidate pool for the national team coach.
0: The book is Masters of Modern Soccer. The author is Grant Wall. Grant, the uh really uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. From my April 2018 interview with Grant Wall, his book Masters of Modern Soccer, and he got it right about Xavi Alonso, currently the manager of Bayern Leverkusen. Grant Wall, may he rest in peace. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.